Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galuzzi and Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division's Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. Uh, I'm excited to welcome our guest uh, to the podcast today. Vika Chandra Shaker. Vika is actually uh, one of my friends from uh, law school, so really excited to have him on the, the show today. Vika is a member of the trial section of Mui White and handles matters across a wide range of industries concerning general commercial litigation with an increasing focus on bankruptcy, creditors' rights, and restructuring. Vika has significant experience in property, real estate, and landlord-tenant disputes, complex business disputes, construction matters, and with municipal governmental issues. On the bankruptcy side, Vika has successfully litigated adversary proceedings and counseled clients through complex bankruptcy issues under both Chapter 7 and Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. He enjoys the intricacies of trial work and relishes the opportunity to appear in the courtroom. Before joining Mui White, Vika worked at a local local firm where he represented cities, municipalities, school districts, and other public entities involving civil rights and tort claims. In this role, Vika defended governmental entities and employees against a variety of claims in federal and state court. He worked to identify and execute strategies that benefit his clients at all phases, from pre-litigation through case resolution by dispositive motion, trial, settlement, or appeal. Additionally, Vika has experience working for the Denver City's Attorney's Office and the 20th Judicial District District Attorney's Office. In his spare time, Vika enjoys tennis, basketball, hiking, literature, film, trivia, coaching mock trial, and spending time with his three dogs. He speaks Spanish and intermediate Tamil. Welcome, Vika. Oh, uh, I know, right? You do all of those things. It's always I, crazy I, to hear it out loud. Yeah, and, and so I, I used to think that having a longer bio would be better, and now I'm thinking... You know, as older lawyers tend to tell me, more succinct is better. Yeah, that's <laughs> almost that's almost too much information. You're to, not to the handle. only person during the intro <laughs> to be like, man, I really need to tighten that bio up. <laughs> so it always makes it sound longer when you're reading it out loud. Um, well, anyway, Vika, welcome uh, to getting legal with it. A pleasure to have you here today. Uh, why don't we just start off uh, and introduce yourself and kind of tell us uh, a little bit about uh, where you're from and where you went to undergrad? Sure. Um, I'm representing my colors right now on my head. I uh, got I went went to undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin. I grew up in a suburb outside of Houston called Clear Lake. Uh, I spent the bulk of my life, uh, bulk of my first 20 years of my life, 22 years in Texas. I moved here as soon as I physically could. <laughs> uh, haven't looked back. It was the best decision I've ever made, uh, apart from getting married. And throw uh, that one in there for which, the wife. <laughs> well, that and and uh, she's from Boulder. So oh, there you go. You know, so so actually, I guess moving here was the best. Move, move, <laughs> moving to Colorado was the best thing I ever did for my for my personal 
self and, and I think for my career, at least so far, uh, moved here in 2012, met you pretty early on, um, graduated law school, 2015, CU, and then pretty much moved to Denver the day after I finished taking the bar. What, what brought you to Colorado? Did you move here specifically because you wanted to go to CU or was Colorado kind of already in the cards or tell us a little about that? The story is a little crazy. Uh, for those who, for those who don't know, I've probably told the story a lot in various circles, but, um, I studied abroad in Spain in, in college, and that's relevant because uh, the program I studied abroad with, I actually applied to teach there uh-huh. um, during a year after after um, after my undergrad was was concluded. Sure. And I, I got the job. I was lining up an apartment with a friend of mine uh, who, who lived in Spain, and um, everything was in the works. That was sometime in like March, April mm-hmm. of uh, 2012. And if you'll remember, around that same time, um, that's when, you know, Greece fell and then all the dominoes fell in, in the Eurozone. And so Spain was hit among the, the hardest of the various, uh, co- countries employing the Euro at the time. And, um, they cut any basically, uh, non-Spanish jo- and this was a job with the government. So they're like, we're not hiring foreigners yeah. for any reason. <laughs> yeah, we, can barely, we can't even employ Spanish people. Sorry. A hundred percent. I mean, they, they were looking at, I think it was between 25 and 30% unemployment. It was absolutely ridiculous. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so I lost the job on the day that I found or on the day that I finished my last exam in undergrad. Oh, and lovely. So I had a backup plan somehow, some way, probably my parents, uh, forced me to do this. And, and I, and I, I listened at least partially. I had taken the LSAT and I had applied to just a handful of law schools thinking, you know, if I get into one, I really, really like, maybe I can defer it for a year or sure. or retake the LSAT when I get back for whatever, uh, thinking, you know, I should have a backup sort of in the back of my head. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe they kick me out of the country. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and so I had applied to CU. I applied to a couple other places. CU was the first one to admit me and the first one to, to say, come out and visit, came out and visited. That was in March of 2012. I remember it distinctly. And I remember driving in. I never, I had been to Colorado several times to ski. Mm-hmm. That's what you do when you're from Texas. You, you come up here in December, January, you ski, and then you go back after right. three or four days. Right. Um, I always loved it. I loved, you know, actually having a cold winter and snow and, and not having to suffer through the 90 to hundred percent humidity that is Houston and, and Austin. Um, so I really liked it. And I was like, oh, if I got into Colorado, I'd seriously consider moving there. Um, I came up and as soon as you get, get over that, uh, on 36 and you kind of drive over McCaslin yep, yep. and come down, you see that view and I was sold. I was done. <laughs> You're like, yep, I was this like, is no, the place this is awesome. Me. And I talked to the Dean of admissions at the time was Christine Jackson at uh, CU. She deferred me for a year. Everything was working out great. Uh, so as soon as this news came in from Spain, I, I called her and I think the person who had any sort of say over whether or not I'd get to, I guess, undefer. Uh, was gone for another four or five days. And you're like, oh, great. So I waited a weekend and then like another handful of days, uh, sort of on ten- tenor hooks, not knowing what was going on. I started applying to other jobs in Austin and things like that. And, you know, fortunately, graciously, they said, come come on back. We'll give you, you know, whatever the offer was initially. We'll just basically great. bring that back. My wife jokes that um, she was sort of in this like limbo as getting in to see you at the same time. And she thinks it was me undeferring that actually got her not to go to see you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever have a way to, to, <laughs> to prove that. that. It's a, it's a good theory. It's uh, probably valid. So I think you kind of, uh, touched on this a little bit. So obviously you were thinking about going to Spain, doing the teaching thing out there. Um, 
Was the plan to eventually go to law school? And, and if so, kind of what drew you to, you know, the idea of being a lawyer in the practice of law? Yeah. Um, no, I wanted to go to law school for I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to go to law school since I was like 11 or 12. OK. Um, so this was always the, the Spain thing was sort of an unexpected um, detour. Sure. Um, to the extent it was going to happen, it would have been an unexpected and I think a welcome detour. Whether or not I would have ever come back. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it's right. an open question and my life would have looked very different. Nevertheless, um, no. So I went to when I was in middle school. So where I grew up, uh, they had a pretty robust magnet program. So I grew up about 10 minutes from NASA Mission Control. Oh, cool. Uh, a bunch of my friends' parents are astronauts and rocket scientists and, you know, work on. Uh, one of my best friends was actually in my wedding, works for NASA, lives in Houston. Uh, yeah. D- designed the glove for the new uh, spacesuit. Yeah, he probably lives or uh, probably yep. works in, in Clear Lake where yep. I grew up. Yep. Um, and if you ever go there, that's like the highlight of where I grew up. Is <laughs> There's NASA. NASA. It's freaking cool. I mean, Houston, we have a problem, is actually right. like right. 10 minutes from, from my house. Uh, well, my, my childhood home. In any case, um, so a lot of smart kids, a very robust magnet program, uh, a lot of really like dri- driven parents and things like that. There was actually a, uh, the magnet program was so robust that they, they basically placed a middle school magnet program inside of an underperforming school. So it was kind of divided up half and half between like the, the, re- the normal like attendance, people who were right. into that school. And then the people who got into this magnet program, uh, I happened to get into the magnet program. Uh, there it was like a lottery system. Sure. So I got in there and the coolest thing about that, the best thing that ever happened about that program was that they had a, what they call basically elective courses. You could take every, every, uh, depending on the course, like six to nine weeks. Cool. Uh, and one of the nine week ones, one of the longer ones was mock trial ah. taught by a former DA who left her position and was teaching basically us history mm-hmm. at the middle school. Uh, Miss Griffith, shout out, Miss Griffith. Shout um, out, shout out. <laughs> uh, I think I think her name's. I think she got married since. But in any case, uh, that's how I remember her. And I ended up taking that elective uh, four different times over the course of two years. <laughs> <laughs> By the time I got to the fourth one, she goes, "Well, you can't do this anymore. Like you're yeah. the TA now." Yeah, stop it. <laughs> Seriously, no, no. I was, I was, I just went around and like help people. So literally, twelve years old, I'm learning rules of evidence. I'm learning very basic procedure. I'm learning how a trial is conducted, what a cross-examination, direct, open, close, what it all means, how it all puts together, what the judge does. Very, like, you know, pretty advanced stuff for a 7th, 8th grader. Uh, but I was bitten, man. It was awesome. Right. I, I was really good at – growing up, I was really good at math. Um, really liked math. I still really like math. It actually helps me, surprisingly, in my job, especially on the bankruptcy side. Right. But um, – the thing about math is it has answers. And I realized like it's a lot more fun when nobody knows what the answer is. Right, right, right. And you can start to play with stuff <laughs> and really just mold it to, to be whatever you want. So I got bit by the bug. There wasn't mock trial for me in high school, unfortunately. Um, and I didn't really – I tried out in college and the University of Texas like official team is psycho, man. They're, They're like really into it. Yeah. So I was on the top two list twice. Didn't make it either time. Darn. Uh, darn. But then, I mean, that was it. I was like, yeah, I want to do trial work. This is cool. Well, and that's actually a great segue uh, to, to kind of what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so uh, from your bio, I know you're doing kind of a focus on a lot of different 
um, you know, areas, but I think can all can be encompassed kind of by under the, the umbrella of general kind of commercial um, litigation. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your kind of day to day is like in general co- commercial litigation? Is it meeting with clients? Is it writing? Is it research? Is it, are you in court? Uh, what, what does that kind of look like? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the cool things, and I can't speak to every other uh, firm, especially, you know, civil litigation firms, but, but our firm is not just a litigation firm, right? We, we are a full service um, shop pretty much, you know, the, the cornerstone of the business is actually the cornerstone of the firm is actually um, the, the business section. I mean, I mean the like transactional John, John Moy, I don't know if you knew he taught contracts at DU for decades. Okay. Well, well-respected dude, um, you know, is, is still in and out of the office, but, but pretty much retired at this point, but he's, he made a great name for himself. So this firm was, was his idea way back when. Okay. And um, so that's where it started was, you know, corporate transactional work. Um, we have a real estate section as well. So we do, we service a lot of real estate clients doing leasing, uh, purchase and sale, um, zoning development type, type of issues. And then we have the trial section and, and our job is kind of, you know, you clean up the messes that the other sections create (laughs) and then you pick up, you know, as far as business development, you pick it all up wherever you find it, uh, you know, throughout, throughout the rest of your, uh, practice. So, that's how I sort of end up doing all the things that you listed. It, it ranges from me doing like bankruptcy and creditors rights work for banks and lending institutions. And, and um, just even down to like small time individuals who are independent contractors for companies that went belly up. Sure. Um, everything from that to, you know, landlord ten- tenant issues, various re- real estate disputes, various, you know, mem- membership LLC um, d- disputes, board of director stuff. Uh, and then from that, and then the other cool thing about what we do is, is, um, you know, we can help out individuals on a, on a case by case basis. Uh, so I'm actually, you, you'll, you'll love this. I'm, I'm fighting the city. I'm fighting a city. I shall remain nameless, but <laughs> fighting a city right now, uh, in, in a district court down in Southern Colorado and, uh-huh. um, sort of using what I learned in my municipal defense days <laughs> against them at this point. Uh, so anyway. My 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 day to day ranges is is really kind of the answer. It it varies, and the cool thing is I get a lot of ownership over my own cases. Uh, I get to develop my own business if I want, if I can. Oh, cool. Uh, so so I I try to do a decent amount of that, um, you know, and and meet people and and get into things. So you know, as far as my, you know, I can go out and and I, and I have one of my clients is a brewery. So we're actually in the middle of an arbitration dispute right now. Oh wow! Uh, it's a friend of mine who owns a brewery. He's gotten yeah. into some some you know, not necessarily hot water. He's actually done the right thing. We hope. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it can go anywhere, uh, wherever my day takes me. I, I do a lot of client interaction. I'm the primary, I'm pretty much all my cases talking to the clients. I do most of the drafting writing. I prefer it that way. Um, yeah, it's cool. I mean, I think the last couple of years have really shifted and I think the pandemic kind of accelerated a lot of growth, right. Uh, pr- professionally, cause now you're working at home. You have to be a self-starter. Yep. You, you have to be, you know, on top of, your cases and cause partners are, you know, first of all, if you're working with someone who's in the management of the firm, they're busy as all hell. Uh, when the pandemic hits trying to figure out what the heck are we yeah, going to yeah. do? <laughs> How are we um, going to pay all these people? So, you know, overall, I think it's, it's, it's been, it's been hugely, um, hugely beneficial to me the past 
two or so years is your day particular. to is your day to day so obviously you worked in, in the city attorney's office you also worked in the da's office up in boulder the 20th judicial um is the day-to-day just like completely different from what you're doing now or or or, or did all kind of build on each other or was there some overlap there yeah so the da's office i worked at um in law school so that was okay. sort of an externship um so the day-to-day there was very lim- limited compared to what right, I Right, right, right. You weren't licensed yet. Makes sense. I uh, wasn't licensed yet. And just the nature of the type of work that I was able to do, which was basically, you know, this like like day day one arraignments yep. um, on like county court traffic cases and, you know, mi- misdemeanor DV, mm-hmm. theft, whatever. Um, all of those, you get to go to, you, you do the jail courthouse stuff. All of that was pretty cool. The best part about it, I got to get be, you know, in front of judges a yep. lot. yep. Um, and really get to hone my like ability to think on the fly and, and, you know, present something succinctly and, and make a judge actually believe what I have to say, despite the fact that I don't have a bar license. Um, the city attorney's office was sim- similar to that, more similar to that than what I do now. I think in the sense of, I wasn't given a lot of responsibility, um, very much a small cog and a big wheel. Um, the legal department at the city attorney's office, as you probably know, is, is absolutely enormous. Uh, so I was in the claims department. So the cool part there was a lot of research writing, um, digging into certain cases and appellate issues, uh, usually Section 1983 civil rights defense issues. Is it actually bigger than your your current firm? Is the city attorney's office uh, oh, yeah. overall bigger than, than Moy White? Yeah, don't quote me on this. Uh, and I'm sure someone from the city's attorney's office will listen to this and correct me. <laughs> uh, I think they got upwards of 200 lawyers. Really? Mm-hmm. But wow. that's across... Right, all the different. Yeah, I mean, the city has a million different things going yeah. on. On the litigation side, it's probably about as big as our current trial section. Okay, way, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, that includes labor, employment, and then any other. Everything else falls into like the claims bucket. Um, that was a good. That was actually a good segue into my next job, which was doing the same type of city attorney type work, but for a private firm. Right. Um, and so, and that was actually I think in the same building where Law Bank is. So. Yep. 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 There I got, that was a good sort of in between where I am now and, and where I was. So I, there I started doing a ton of, you know, handling cases from front to back, um, you know, doing the initial answers and, and motions to dismiss, uh, discovery, discovery, you know how it goes. Lots of discovery. Uh, dispositive motions. And then I didn't get to go to trial when I was there. Um, I had a couple that were sort of on the verge and then I got the offer to come to Moy White. Oh, cool. Uh, but at Moy White, I've done... Um, yeah, so at Moy White, it was a, learn, a steep learning curve because I was coming from basically doing personal injuries, civil rights, insurance-related stuff to not anymore. Right. To, like, <laughs> you know, breach a contract, intercompany disputes, membership disputes, tra- you know, a, lo- a bunch of accounting issues and things that, you know, when you're a lawyer, you hope you never have to look at. And right, yet, right, right. Yet here I am <laughs> trying to analyze a balance sheet. Um, so that, that was a huge learning curve coming in the first six months or so. Um, but, you know, it's good people, good yeah. learning, and, and we get a lot of opportunity to, to make mistakes. Um, and that's really been the sort of driving force that's that's kept me there. I've been there over three years now. That's the longest job I've ever had. Um, and it's the ability to, like, make mistakes and, 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 and grow sort of and experience learn. Experience yeah. and experiment. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of uh, that's actually a decent segue. So before we move on to kind of our next topic, uh, we have a lot of law student, you know, first year lawyers uh, kind of listening to the podcast. What advice would you give to, you know, a law student um, who, who's interested in, in going into commercial commercial litigation? Um, you know, Moy White's a, a fairly large firm by Colorado standards, at yeah. least. Uh, um, you know, what kind of advice or skills would, would you think they should develop uh, if they want to be successful in kind of the commercial litigation realm? 
Yeah. Um, if you're a law student, I mean, the biggest thing is to, I think, take, take courses that if you want to do trial work, I can't speak to any of the other sections. Sure, sure, sure. That's and they fair. wouldn't want me to. <laughs> They're like, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> but um, if you want to do trial work, if you want to do, you know, civil litigation, commercial litigation, I think the, the probably the most important, two, two most important things are, um, I mean, you got to know procedure, front and back. The people who know procedure and the people who don't, there's a world of difference and you see who wins cases and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, it's a sad fact of life sometimes because the better case doesn't always win. It's the person who has the lawyer who knows the rules. Uh, this is, I mean, you know, this trial work lit litigation, it's a game. It's a chessboard with multiple dimensions. Right. Uh, and if you don't know the rules of the game, you're going to get stomped no matter how smart you are, or how good your case might be or how convincing your client is. So that's the most important one. Um, if, if you did if you didn't understand one else of civil procedure, that's not your fault. Most people don't know how to teach it. I feel like, and we don't get a great basis in it. Uh, but just yesterday, my wife, my wife's lawyer, she and I were talking through a problem and I had a great professor. I had professor Mueller at CU who most people he's esoteric, right? Most people can't understand. Uh, some, somehow I, I sort of connected with what he was throwing down and, and picked it up and, Remembered something yesterday, uh, the well-pleaded complaint rule, if you'll yeah, if you, yeah. uh, believe that. And things like that just stick with me. But it's also because I took another course of his, which was basically advanced civil procedure. Uh, it was complex civil litigation. Uh -huh. um, and uh, actually a current colleague, my, uh, Nick, Nick Herrick. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. So he works in YY too. He was in that course with me. Uh, a couple of my buddies, Connor and, and John, Michael, were yeah. in that course with me. And that one, that and then federal courts with Professor Bloom. Those three courses were just like procedure front to back. Um, you start to see all the nuances, all the ways things can go wrong. And then when you look at the rules, you're like, oh, all right, I get it. Right. It's all starting to make sense. The, the rules are starting to, to show, show themselves in a way that that makes the rest of the board clearer. So that'd be one. Two is, I mean, as many chances as you can to write something. And I don't mean uh, law school is going to hate me for that. I don't mean write memos. Right. I really don't. Uh, I mean, write. Take, take a stab at writing an argument in a brief. You know, if, if you're, if you're clerking at a firm in the summer, which, which I would encourage everyone who's interested in this path to do as much as that's going to suck. Cause you don't know anything. Look for opportunities and ask for opportunities to write. Even if it's just, you know, two pages of an argument, uh, but to do the research on your own, to understand the issue, to pull out the issue and to do the research on that and then put a brief together or, or just a short couple of paragraphs, whatever the case might be, but to start to learn to be persuasive at all times right? and to right. use facts to your advantage at all times and to figure out what facts really suck for your case and what facts are really good and how to deal with that. Right. I mean, that's the right. hardest part of the, and that's the most fun part of the job. It's also the hardest part of the job. Right. Cause you can't always control the facts, you know, and you're that's looking the at the thing facts, you can't control. what your clients already done. And you're like, man, if you had just done this or said this, this would have been a whole different case, but yeah. you know, you got to play the hand you're dealt. Uh, exactly. And, and, and then what you start to realize is, is as you get further along is you start having institutional clients where you start seeing the problems before they arise, right? You start right. seeing the potential for risk before it happens. And then you control the narrative as the lawyer. So this is what happened in the case against the city is I saw what was coming down the pike. Uh, I know how they operate over there. Right. And we just sort of laid what I call little bear traps all along the way <laughs> and just watched them step in them. Nice. Nice. Right? And, and now I get to use those facts to my advantage and say, well, back then you said this and now you're trying to say that, you know, whatever right. the case might right. be. Um, to me, the, 
every anyone can be a detective. You know what I mean? Everyone watches true crime murders. That that's the fun part about the job is being being the detective, figuring out the facts and how you're going to tell the story. Uh, but if you don't know what the rules are and you don't know how to be persuasive with it, it's it's kind of a moot point. Super interesting, man. Super interesting. I do want to move on to our our next topic and talk a little bit about the uh, South Asian Bar Association and the Colorado chapter. And my understanding is uh, you are involved in in Saba. Um, when did, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Saba is and kind of when and how you, you got involved? Yeah. Um, Saba is, as you said, the South Asian Bar Association. It's actually Saba Co for the Colorado chapter, South Asian Bar Association of Colorado. Um, we are part of a larger national or North American organization, I should say, excuse me, with, with lawyers from uh, everywhere, including Canada. Um, so nice. it's, it's a very diverse, uh, group, uh, geographically diverse and, and, uh, practice wise, very diverse group, group of individuals. Uh, but the Colorado chapter, the goal here is to, is, is kind of twofold. One is to increase, you know, South Asian rep- representation in the legal community, uh, both as far as trying to bring in new South Asian lawyers and just as far as get, getting ourselves out and more involved in the community writ large. Um, the second part of that is is doing things to advance um, and bring to light South Asian interests for the South Asian community, not just lawyers. Um, so that's sort of the dual track that that we try to operate on. The pandemic, like like most organizations, was was tough on us. Our resources sure. are not extensive. Um, you know, our biggest event is usually the um, sort of end of year in person gala that we host. We're not doing it. Uh, we didn't do it last year. We're sort of on the fence about if we're going to have it in person this year still. And I've heard a lot of people are very reticent to jump into a room with 200 people yeah, who may or may not be vaccinated. It's tough. It's tough. It's hard may to decide on these things. Yep. Yep. Uh, so so it's seeming like we may push that out to the spring and and see. Um, but but that's really the goal of the organization. And it takes di- di- different forms depending on who's you know in charge. So this year. Uh, last year I was the president elect this year, uh, which is basically VP the, the, this year. I'm the president and, um, you know, our, our involvement ranges from trying to engage with other bar associations, especially diversity bars, uh, sponsor events, sponsor CLEs. We've done a great deal of that. Um, I, I personally really enjoy that. First of all, it's great to get CLE credit, but se- right. se- second of all, it's just nice to, to have speakers and to have people from the South Asian community talk on topics that, that don't get talked about. One we had recently was um, Professor Rashmi Goel at the University of Denver Law School who talks about um, the model minority, the myth of the model minority. Okay. Um, and gives a very, very interesting presentation on the topic. And uh, and I don't know how familiar What is that? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, what briefly, what is the, the model minority? I'll, I have heard that term before, yeah. but I, I couldn't, certainly couldn't define it. I'll try to do it justice. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure I'm going to butcher it. Uh, but fun- functionally, I mean, it's about the perception of of what people see as the model minority, the minorities who come to the country and assimilate and integrate and have good jobs and are wealthy, right? Right. And South Asians, a lot of Asians generally uh, fall into that category as like, oh, they, you know, they're all engineers, doctors, lawyers, whatever. Uh, they all have these great jobs. They all make a lot of money. That's what we think a minority should be. And then everybody else, right? People who aren't in that bucket, they're doing it wrong. Right. right that, okay. So so that's harmful for a few reasons, right? One, it's harmful to the others, the the other minorities, the other people of color, the other marginalized communities uh, who now have to live up to this absolute, pardon my, BS standard right, that's been right. set. 
and not set by us, not set by the community that's being held up as this model, uh, but by the powers that be. Right. Um, right. And so it's another extension of privilege and wealth and, 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 you know, institutionalized power. Sure. It's also harmful to those who are being held up because we're not being seen as individual people, right? We're not being seen as individual citizens with, with contributions that are unique. We're being seen as well, unless you make the money, unless you have these high paying jobs and positions of power. And, you know, we got tons of South Asians working in the white house. We got one at the, in the second, second, second in command. (laughs) There we go. You know, um, it's great. It's wonderful. And it's, it's something to aspire to certainly, but for those who don't fall in that, right. To, to be sort of excluded and seen as something different or lesser or just ignored altogether. That's how it's harmful as well. And then there's the third way, which is just for the people who are in that, the, the pressure is, is yeah, it's got to believe it's just an immense amount of pressure. Like you have to do this just to be average. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she, she really goes through how this model minority myth in America came to be in particular with the heart seller act and the influx of immigration from, South Asia in particular and Asia, uh, I believe it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any case, um, if anyone's interested in this, please reach out to me. You can find my uh, email on my website, on on the Moy White website. Uh, I'm happy to put you in touch with Professor Gull. She is a wonderful resource. Um, so that's, you know, just a few of the things that, that we're able to do. And that's some, sort of what the goal is. I actually got involved in law, in law school. Okay. Way. So it is open to both law students yes. and to practicing attorneys and everyone, everyone is welcome. Absolutely. Um, so there was a chapter, there was a student led chapter or sub chapter when I was there. I don't know if it still exists. Um, there's probably a lot on, on our organization for not liaising sufficiently with law students. So uh, my bad. We will. Um, <laughs> it'll, it'll be more of our goal, I think, to 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 encourage that. Uh, there's more and more South Asians who are going to law school, who see it as a viable career path, and um, you know, it, it would be it would be a shame, I think, to not open that umbrella a little wider. Um, and and actually, I think that's a uh, uh, kind of a, a great segue to um, another interesting topic that I think is going to be really uh, important for a lot of people coming down the road, and that's the recent uh, Supreme Court change to the CLE rules, um, and uh, they updated those rules to include an EDI. Um, requirement. Um, for those listening who may not know, uh, Vicka, can you tell us a little bit about what is EDI and tell us a little bit about the rule? Yeah, 100%. Super amped about this. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't claim any sort of um, personal credit, <laughs> personal credit for getting this thing off the ground. I was involved uh, after I sort of came into the president role at Saba. Uh, this was something that that our, our past president, Hethel Doshi, uh, had sort of gotten our gotten our membership into and our board into but but I was able to be there when this rule was ultimately passed and be part of sort of the um, the the promotion and, and trying to get this thing actually done so EDI first of all is stands for equity diversity inclusivity or inclusion um, and it's it's a it's a goal it's a concept right as a profession we have historically lacked the necessary equity, diversity, and inclusivity. No uh, way. That would <laughs> laws, laws really male and white? <laughs> no. Could have fooled Sh- me. I know, shocking, shocking. Well, it's funny, you, you pronounce the name of the firm as, as and maybe it was just like teetering on the edges, like muy white, which is like very white. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and um, you know, I think that there, there was a perception of it in that way. I know when I got the job, I was talking to um, 
others of others lawyers that I knew in in the South Asian community who kind of made that same joke. And uh, I, I, I will say to the firm's credit, and I think to the credit of, of a lot of what's going on in the Colorado legal community, the firm has made a huge shift towards, you know, changing its hiring practices and, and who they're looking at and where they're looking for talent. Um, it's been a really great, I mean, the past three and a half years have been remarkable, uh, both within the firm that I'm at and just, I think, in general. So this is an outgrowing of that, an outgrowth of that. And um, the rule, to, so previously to this, you needed seven ethics credits. I think it was every right, yep, every yep. like three years, right? Yep. And everyone always, you know, complained about where I'm, where the hell am I getting my ethics credits from? Um, the rule change proposed was the one that was ultimately adopted was to convert convert the thinking from ethics first of all from ethics to professional responsibility, and then the conversation becomes what's our responsibility as a profession? Sure. And then the conversation becomes our responsibility as a profession is to improve our EDI. One of our responsibilities is to improve our EDI. So in that vein, it was, let's take the seven. Two of those hours are going to be devoted to professional responsibility in the areas of equity, diversity, and inclusivity. Um, so the rule I don't think has gone into place yet. I think it goes into place. I think it starts next year. I think next it starts year. January 1 yep. of 22. Yep. Yep. Uh, and from then on, which is actually perfect with my sort of credits, uh, but from then on, it's going to be of the seven per three years, two of those have to be in these areas. And I think what you're going to see in the goal here is to see more CLE programming in the areas of, of, of EDI. And um, I'll just take a couple of minutes and explain why. I mean, I think it's obvious yeah, to you yeah. why it's important, right? But this is a historically male, white-dominated profession, and because of that, the thinking gets severely limited. The perspective is severely limited if you only keep it to that population and that, that sort of uh, composition. Diversity of thought, I mean, di- diversity of people equals diversity of thought, and diversity of thought equals better legal service. I mean, that's really right. cut and dried, I think. You know, you might d- disagree. Someone out there might, might disagree, but in, in my mind, that's sort of the, the equation. Uh, the more differences of opinion that we have, the more diverse perspectives that we have, diverse backgrounds, people who come up with experiences that are completely different than what you and I might've experienced. Yep. Yep. Um, they're going to bring to the table something additional, uh, something new and something that no one else has thought of. And if we can change the way we provide legal services or change the services themselves to fit a client, to fit a sector, to fit whatever it might be, then we're doing our job a whole lot better. And we're going to make more money. I mean, at the end of the day, if money is your object, uh, right. which it doesn't necessarily have to be, but if money is your object, this is good for you. Right. And and the flip side of that is we've seen it, and I'm sure large firms have really seen this push from clients in the first instance where clients are coming to them saying, when I hire you, if I'm going to hire you, I need to know that your team is going to be staffed 50-50 men, women, and you're going to have at least 25% people of color, or, you know, BIPOC people. Right. right, whatever it might be, and for the the clients come in and sort of dictate this, and fine, that's the free market working as I think it should, um, and and it's telling the law firms how they have to respond to that. Uh, so both from I think an ethical and moral responsibility as well as a financial responsibility, 
it makes a whole lot of sense. It, it really is good, you know, and as someone who grew up, you know, obviously I am a, you know, straight white male who, who, who you know, is not really diverse in, in, in any respect. And I grew up in, in Wyoming, which was about 98% white um, and had very little, you know, diverse experiences. But as someone who, you know, really, you know, tries to understand, uh, you know, other people's point of views, it amazes me sometimes when I'm sitting in uh, either a CLE or some type of meeting talking about diversity how much I still have to, to learn, you know, and to, and to sit down and listen to people and understand their experiences. It's, it's almost every time you sit down for like an hour presentation and you're like, wow, you know, they're talking about an issue that like I didn't even know existed. Right. And it's just not because I didn't want to know, but literally because it's just not something that I would have ever experienced. And, and and until you really sit down and listen to the people who have experienced said, you know, look, either this is what I'm going through or this is what I've been through or this is where we need to go. You know, like it's great that, um, you know, I got hired, but now we need to make sure that, you know, people at the top are representative and that promotions are happening and that there is the support system to support uh, people from different experiences. Uh, uh, may need different types of support. Uh, and uh, it sounds like that, you know, Saba and some of the other diversity bars um, are a great place for for people to find, um, you know, individuals who have gone through those same experiences so that they can help, you know, uh, whether it's coping or whether it's professional development or, you know, whether it's just a support mechanism um, to find people that have gone through those same experiences um, and are in the same profession. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one part empathy, right? Like, like you said, you, you go in and hear someone talk about an experience that you didn't even know existed. All of a sudden, you know, you, you have one, one part of it is now you can start to empathize with clients who are in that position or, or others who are in that position, whether or not it's within your profession. Uh, and then the other half of it is, look, now my, my understanding of the world is bigger. My understanding of the world is better. Uh, I can do more, you know, if, if you're a student of the world and I know you are, you're a student of life why wouldn't you want to know, right? right? If you can, you should. And if it's out there, you want to try and soak in everything you can. Um, and that just makes you, I think a better overall, overall human being, right. Uh, much right. less a better, a better attorney, uh, or a better counselor. Right. Um, so to me, there's really no drawback to it. There's no downside to it. Um, I will say that when we were pushing the rule through and really trying to promote the rule change and get it adopted, um, some of the pushback that we did get was, I think, well-intentioned, which is, uh, which is always the problem, right? Uh, if you're forcing people to do something, we don't have to talk about vaccine mandates. Right? <laughs> if, you're forcing, if you're forcing people to do something, are they really getting it? Or is this just going to instill this sense of pushback and, sure. and uh, resentment? I don't know. Um, and, and, I'll be honest, and I don't, I, I couldn't speak to the specifics, but between the time the rule was proposed and when the rule was adopted, there were changes that were adopted to the rule the, that were ultimately, um, that, that are ultimately going to be implemented that reflect a compromise of, you know, when we're thinking about diversity of thought, there is a diversity of thought, and that includes people who aren't so receptive to the notion of we should change how we've been doing things for the past 30, 40 years, right? Right. Um, and it would be sort of, I think, hypocritical. Um, to ignore that or say that they are somehow not worthy of being heard. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, when you balance the things together, it's is the risk that some people are going to get upset over this not worth the potential reward of, of, you know, having people more 
understanding of what EDI is and how they can be a part of that and their own implicit biases and right. everything that comes right. with it. And I think the ultimate d- judgment call was made that no, I mean, that's, that's not, I mean, or yes, it is worth that, that pushback. It is worth right. the risk. Um, well, and just getting people in the room, I think is so important just to hear it, you know, regardless of what their mindset was going in, you know, and I think we saw this and I don't have the exact figures off the top of my head, but one of the interesting things during the the gay marriage debates, uh, which, you know, for almost everyone now is, is essentially settled. Um, but one of the, the, the biggest factors on whether an individual supported gay marriage was whether or not they knew any gay people. And if, and if you never met and if you lived in a community where, you know, everyone was in the closet and you had never met anyone who was at least out, you were significantly more likely to oppose it. But once you met a person, whether that was your best friend or even acquaintance, like once you knew a real human being that was saying, this is my life experience, you were substantially more likely to support gay marriage. And I think that in the EDI context, um, you know, just being in a room with diverse individuals, listening for an hour, I'm not saying you're going to walk out and like your entire worldview is going to be, you know, changed and you're just going to be like, oh, wow, like now I understand everything. (laughs) You know, we got to be realistic. But just being in the room and and seeing an actual individual in your community, in your profession, talk about their experiences or talk about what they where they want to see the profession go. I think that's going to have a a measurable impact. Um, And without a requirement like that, especially at like a small firm, if you're a small firm with three or four people, all of them white, you know, you're, you probably don't have a lot of experience interacting with diverse individuals. And so now at least, you know, and it's not massive. We're talking two hours every three years here where, you know, at least there's going to be at some point where you're either going to be in a room or going to be on a Zoom call. Uh, hopefully we'll be in a room, you know, if this pandemic ever ends. But, um, you know, you're going to be hearing other people's experiences that you never would have heard. And, and I, like you said, I just don't see how there could possibly be a downside to that. Correct. Um, Correct. Um, there's a lot, I mean, a lot more you could say about that too. And I think diversity becomes, uh, the, the meaning of the word diversity starts to expand too. When you start yeah. to do that, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, you're like, I'm not diverse. Well, I don't know if that's true, right? I'm looking at you like you're not diverse in the way that someone might consider diversity. I'm but taller than the average to, American. Sure. <laughs> sure. But, but your experiences and the things that, that you do on it and things that you enjoy right on a day to day basis, um, are very different, I'm sure, right. than pretty right. much anybody else. Right. And so, you know, once you start to expand your definition, then you start to see it everywhere and you start to, you know, that's that's where the I part of the EDI comes in. Right. right? You start yep. to understand that. Yep. And it's really been cool to watch, you know, so I've been, you know, fairly involved in, in, in the CBA and the bar associations for the last, you know, few years. Um, and it really is cool to watch just how much of a priority this has become. You know, and, and speaking specifically for the CBA, um, you know, it, it literally is either the number one or one of the top priorities basically at every meeting. I mean, diversity and diversity issues, whether that's making sure we're reaching out to the diversity bar associations to co-sponsor events. Um, you know, speaking for the YLD, uh, we had a, a ton of really good CLEs and um, kind of TED style talks. Um, you know, shout out to Morale and, and Philip and some of these people that have just put on some really um, you know, excellent events. Um, and it's, it's, it's really getting to a point where I think that the leadership and the people that kind of, you know, are in power, that this is now like, uh, that EDI stuff is basically uh, accepted as a given. Like, this is something that like, 
you know, we're past the debate of like, is this important? It's now, it is important. And how are we going to implement it? And how are we going to um, continue to grow on what we've already done, which is it, which is really uh, cool. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, five or 10 years from now where we're at. And I'm sure there are, you know, people in high school now that by the time they get to college and then to law school are going to be pointing out even more ways that we can advance and like helping us see, you know, like, Hey, yeah, you guys took a lot of really big steps, but now there's these other areas that you guys completely haven't thought of. And we need to bring them into the fold and have even more inclusion, um, which is really cool to kind of see it all build on each other. It is. And I've been, I've been in Colorado nine years now. Uh, and when I moved here, I was struck by exactly how white it was and, and yeah, coming how from much Texas, I noticed it must've been a different uh, big yeah, cities too. And, and how much I noticed it previously. I, I, you know, it never struck me as, as anything to, to remark at, you know, it was just, but, but it was very much like, Oh, I'm in a new place. I don't know anyone. It's sort of in my face a little bit. And the last gosh, four five, six years have been, and, and again, great decision moved to Colorado. Uh, and I don't know how other States are, but to me, I'd be shocked if any other state is, is taking the sorts of taking it as seriously as, as Colorado is and the Colorado bar uh, right. at, at large is taking, these issues, uh, and to what I hope and what I believe is, is already a good effect. And, and like you said, once that affects to, once that snowball starts rolling, it's only going to get bigger and bigger, uh, yeah. and, and more impactful. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be great. Well, Vicka, it was such a pleasure, uh, having you on the program today. Uh, I like to end each episode kind of the same way. Um, so we have uh, a lot of law students and, and young lawyers, uh, obviously we're still young lawyers, but younger lawyers, uh, you know, listening today. Um, what is the best way to get a hold of you if they want to reach out and talk to you about whether that's commercial litigation, you know, working at a fairly large law firm, uh, getting involved in Sabaco, um, or, you know, anything else that we've kind of talked about, what's the, the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. Best way to reach me is at my work email. It's on every device I have. Uh, I, I don't miss one tip typically. And if I do, uh, sorry, your email went to spam. Um, <laughs> I won't spell it out for you on the program. Uh, but if you Google Vika and then Moy White, M-O-Y-E-W-H-I-T-E, you'll come up with my page. My email's right on there. My direct work line is on there. You can call me. It rings through to my cell phone. Awesome. Awesome. Well, there you guys go. Uh, so if anyone wants to reach out, get involved, uh, or just pick his brain, uh, we're really big on promoting mentorship and, and reaching out to people that have already kind of walked the path that you're trying to walk. Uh, so thank you so much, Vika, for coming on the program, man. It was great to see you and have a wonderful rest Thanks of your day. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Thanks, man. Get legal with it.